Today in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we're speaking with Oliver Webb, just set brand new world record, two-way average, 316 miles per hour in the American-made SSC Tuatara hypercar highway in Nevada, and good Lord, a peak mile per hour of 331, 331 miles an hour, y'all. Really good to catch up with Ollie. It had been a few years. Got to know him a little bit about a decade ago when he was running in the American Indy Lights Championship, trying to become an IndyCar driver, then went to sports cars, became a champion there, has been a regular at the 24 Hours of Le Mans, I think made seven starts there in the top LMP1 class. This is a guy who does an amazing amount of work, as you'll hear, for quite a few auto manufacturers, most of them in the boutique range, but this is a guy who, I'm telling you, if you're talking about a dream life that involves supreme race car driving at some of the world's greatest events, plus some of the craziest, most fearsome road cars on the planet today, he intersects with both and does even more stunt driving, movie stuff, etc., etc. So it's great to catch up with Ollie. Spent about 40 minutes or so on the phone. Didn't dive directly into the SSC record-breaking attempt. Wanted to walk through his racing career and move forward a bit through his sports car stuff, both of which integral in his ability to do what he did with the good folks at SSC. Another thing which I hope you will enjoy also a little bit different talking about the emotional side these numbers 316 miles per hour average peak of 331 those are the staggering things but what does it take as a human being to get yourself ready and willing to do that and take those risks and knowing that on public roads where a big gust of wind could end your life while you're traveling at 300 plus miles per hour this is some pretty heady stuff that he gets into towards the end of our conversation. Really deep dive, plus some engineering aspects and vehicle prep aspects. Just really in-depth awesomeness from Ollie. So I hope you enjoy this conversation here on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. I was enthused to read about the SSC's crazy top speed run and while reading through i'm looking for who might have been the person with a death wish uh helping to get <laughs> it there and saw your name attached and a huge smile came to my face so i just thought it might be fun to talk about that ollie plus also your history with speed and I don't know if this is the smart place to start, but it came to mind. So thinking about watching you and Indy Lights uh, and what, a little bit in 2011 and then that full season in 2012, at least for what comes to mind of what might have been your first uh, taste and experience with top speed probably would have been the Freedom 100 at Indianapolis Motor Speedway with, you know, running in a pack at 190 plus or so. Does that sound about yeah. right? Yeah, I think that that's probably my first proper taste of um, of top end speed um, in terms of, of that style of speed. I think, yeah, I think they were doing high 190s, weren't they, in a pack? Um, so, yeah, that was my kind of closest to to 200 mile an hour at that stage because anything else 
World Series or F3 related just had um, too much kind of downforce to allow it to go anything anything near that. I think they're more like 170, 180 for World Series. So what is that process like for those who don't know of getting up to what would be outrageous speeds compared to what the average human being will experience in their lifetime, plus doing it around, you know, 10, 12, however many other crazy people and blasting into corners where you have to turn while maintaining that speed. How much of a mental warp adjustment, you name it, was it for you in those first couple of laps before it became normalized? Um, I think, I mean, especially when I, when I first went out by myself on ovals, uh, within a few laps, you get used to it and you think, okay, this is not too bad. Um, you know, what, what was I scared about? What was I nervous about? And then when you get in a pack, then you realize like, Oh, you know, shit, I need a lot of time (laughs) to get used to this. Um, because that's when the car starts getting so much disruption from, from air, and people are trying to draft and everyone's got a different agenda on, you know, you're looking two or three cars ahead sometimes for a move or two or three corners ahead for a move. Um, and the whole, yeah, the whole game is so much more mentally challenging than, than let's say the physicalities of like a, a Toronto or just Detroit kind of street course. So if we're thinking about adjusting to that career wise, Would I be correct in saying if we're talking about just brutal acceleration and potential top speeds, uh, Le Mans, and I don't know if it would be with the Baikalis team or possibly uh, something else you might have driven, but would Le Mans uh, maybe be the next place where you're flirting with 200-ish miles per hour leading into uh, one of the two chicanes? Yeah, so we... Up until last year, I think, or, or maybe we do still. I think we at Spa hold the top speed record in an LMP1 car. And at Le Mans, um, SMP beat it last year. But yeah, the Baikal's LMP1 car is very quick in a straight line. So I think we were doing about three, four, five, three fifty kilometers an hour. So I think that's 210, maybe. Yeah. yeah. So with that much downforce, it's pretty impressive the top speed they can do. Um, because the crazy thing is, is they're carrying, you know, a lot of drag inherently with that downforce. Um, so, yeah, the next time I went that quick was was probably Le Mans, although I did have a brief interim of speed, which, again, strangely, was in a road car um, after I won the European Le Mans Championship in 2014. So I'd only been in an LMP2 car at that point. And at the end of that year, um, we did... A, a speed run uh, in the Koenigsegg 1-1, and that was 242 mile an hour. So that was that was quicker than I'd been in. And I think that still actually until last week was the quickest I'd ever been full stop again in a road car. So now my top two speeds, weirdly, are in a road car, which just doesn't sound right. Well, even so, knowing how barring a big oval like two and a half miles of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which is designed for outrageous speeds, the fact that you're cracking somewhere between 214, 217 miles an hour on a road course uh, in your uh, Baikalis uh, CLM entry. I mean, that's, that is still something that should be very, very respected. 
I love, and I don't know if this is a thing, Ollie, but I love the fact that it seems like you have been entrusted with doing some pretty insane things, whether it is racing vehicles like the uh, the Baikalis entry that has probably been the most prototype-ish among the mm-hmm. prototypes, right? I mean, yeah. you've got a lot of the big factory entries over the years where, of course, they have developments, but they're by and large baked and cooked and more or less what they are for the season. Your team has always been very playful, lots of changes, lots of development. Is there a comfort zone that's natural to you with knowing that, hey, whether it's a new aero package or a new this or that, that many sessions that you wander out into in professional racing involve a little bit of testing and faith? Yeah, I think I think it kind of fell upon me um by accident originally in the way it happened i've always got along with engineers very well i've always been um uh i've always had kind of test roles in the background of my race seasons with both um road going manufacturers and a lot of race teams um i've been simulator driver for a lot of race teams as well so i'm quite a a kind of an engineer's friend in that sense um you always want to be the fastest on track but um there's always there's always someone who's uh, a few hundreds quicker there or, or somewhere so it's uh, it's nice to at least have the engineers on side so i think naturally um when the first couple of seasons with bicolors happened um and there was a lot of development needed and obviously the, the, the budget of the team was quite far behind a toyota or similar um the reason i managed to kind of keep my seat in in a, in a challenging motorsport environment of of budgets being thrown around by a lot of drivers was was being good with the team's development side um and that's that's been the case with road cars as well you know i'm very lucky that that off track um with a lot of my coaching roles i get to jump in 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 many crazy things and and stunt driving for films i do a lot of the mission impossible films men in black films and 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 stuff like that so i'm uh uh, I've kind of driven o- o- almost everything on the planet with four wheels and um, l- luckily not had any big incidents in any of them. You are, yes, you're a busy man. That's um, among the many things I appreciate about, appreciate about you and your career. There's some young drivers who embark upon whatever junior open wheel category. And if things don't go according to plan, well, a bit of stumbling and or off they go into relative obscurity. Maybe it's sports cars, which you've been doing, but it's not as if you have just been stuck with whatever can come along. You're a bit of the exception to the rule, Ollie, where seemingly I think it's a good thing you didn't become an IndyCar driver or a Formula One driver <laughs> because you have become such a, a invaluable asset. I mean, what, if I remember you were involved with the developing was it the BAC mono I believe yes yeah correct yeah and uh, again I apologize I'm working from memory a little bit here something about uh, the Lycan uh, hypersport I think as well might have been on your list potentially but it... uh, the new Fenir, yeah the okay. newer version of it yeah exactly so these are things man where I don't know if you receive them as such but these should be taken as pretty damn high honors because you're the common theme across so many rather remarkable road vehicles and heck even racing opportunities where does that land with you or are you just too damn busy going from plane to plane to plane to let that sink in 
<laughs> no, it, it it does sink in. I try and I try and let it sink in and and pinch myself when I can. Um, yeah, it's it's a weird one, and to think that you know if if IndyCar and, and F1, which which still weirdly, even with all this amazing stuff on the side happening, I would still kind of drop everything to to do those two. Um, I do have to kind of think. Well, you know, there's there's zero point zero one percent people who who make it to the top of motorsport and i kind of always knew that from a young age and um and realized i think i think when it hit me was quite young when i was about 16 when i almost i started karting very late i only did one year um i won the championship that i did and then i I tried to go into um a european championship like the the super one uh, championship they called it um and did one race and got eaten alive and i was like oh okay maybe i'm not that good <laughs> um and then uh, and then got this scholarship from from bmw which was from like hundreds of drivers down to uh, i think three me henry surtees um and i i think was it felipe nazar someone else um who got it at that time and when i got that and realized i now have funding to go racing which i thought i would never be able to race again i would just do karting on the weekends for fun maybe um i thought you know i'm gonna have to work my ass off away from the track as well um so that when i do whenever this does stop if it does stop then i can at least be you know a martin brundle or be a a dario franchitti or, or try and do something on the side build my accolades and be as good as i can on the track as possible that but you know it has to stop at some point and when it does i want to have made the most of every opportunity that came my way so knowing that you have an ongoing and active professional racing career plus you're doing automotive development and tests with or have and continue to do that with a number of manufacturers tell us about this opportunity with SSC, which admittedly with news of crazy speed run last week and some other things they've been working on, I have to say it has shifted the regard for the company and taken them from a bit of a kit car enthusiast only, uh, I wouldn't say high end, high achievement company to one that I would have to assume most people would completely reframe their expectations for the company based on going 331 miles an hour and you <laughs> saying it still had more in it. Tell us about preparing for this, Ollie, because it's not like you're just showing up to a normal race, doing your pre-race work, uh, doing the normal sessions with engineers, strategists, co-drivers and such. This is you doing your one of one routine, kind of a call it an open wheel mindset of it's you in the car. But how do you integrate with uh, the factory here to either develop uh, what you're going to do or are you just simply parachuting in and stepping on the throttle and praying? Um, well, it's, it's, it's a good point. It, it, I had no basis um, of framework of a race weekend or experience to rely on. Um, you know, it wasn't like, oh, we've got a new aero kit this weekend or, or we're going to visit a new track in this season. Everything was completely new, um, out of the comfort zone. And, and then on top of not knowing the team, the car, the road, uh, I'm not a top speed driver. I'm not a, a, a you know, I'm not a world record holder like, um, 
like poor Zeph who who passed away the week before. He's he he'd been on bikes, on boats, on planes, on everything. And you know, when someone you know has that top speed feel in their bum, um, that's like kind of the feeling we have when we go to Le Mans for the fifth, sixth, seventh time. I had none of that data to to log back on, so there was a lot of unknown and anxiety there. Um, I think even more than I thought, because I think after the very last run I did, I kind of realized how much stress had been lingering in the background. Um, but in terms of how they picked me, I'm, I'm very lucky. There was a, some very good names in the pot. Um, it came very much out the blue about a year ago. Um, it actually came through weirdly it came through one of the producers rather than from the car company. The car company had no idea who I was. Um, they, a producer who had been in, in Saudi Arabia with me when I was doing some Formula E work had put my name forward and said, this guy stunt drives. He does some top speeds in Koenigseggs. He does a lot of road car stuff. He works for Michelin. He knows, you know, the balance between stunt driving road cars and race cars. Uh, we met up, uh, three quarters of a year ago, um, with Jared, uh, who owns the company and, and we just got along very well. And, and, um, Funnily enough, I thought that the meeting hadn't gone well and because I'd been I was quite strict with when he was asking the questions of, of what I'd like from uh, the situation to go if we went for this top speed record. And um, in my head, I, I think because a lot of me didn't want to do it, I saw it as an opportunity to be truthful and strict to how I would have the regime go Um because, of course, in all these situations, you know, especially from the producers and the sponsors and the finance side of it, you know, they're, they're in my ear saying, oh, we've got loads of drivers who are willing to do this for nothing for the exposure and all this. And I was very much in the meeting like, uh, you know, if you want me, you know, it, it's I, I've, I've got a lot better things that I want to do rather than this at the time. This is before I'd met the even seen the car or anything. I kind of almost wanted to get out of there. I was a bit nervous about doing it. I thought, wow. why, why am I sat here? Um but then once I met the team and I'd actually had a test run in the car, um, I was blown away because because I was of the same mentality. I'd only seen this car in pictures. I'd kind of heard of the Aero, the car before. Um, you know, I wasn't really sure. I thought, you know, maybe I'll go do the testing, get a bit of work from it, and then just not do the run itself because, you know, naturally it just won't be quick enough or we won't be able to do it. Um but as far as the actual engineering work on the car, um, let's say, um, excluding, um, you know, the, the, the finites of the interior and, you know, Bugatti and Koenigsegg and Porsche and Ferrari have these unbelievable interiors, which are very hard for small manufacturers to compete with. And, and theirs are nice. But anyway, that's that's not really the, the side I was concentrating on. But the actual engineering work was was unbelievable. I mean, everything under that, under that uh under that hood was just beautiful the way it was put together the way it was looked after and the, the team run a tight ship even though they were a small crew um i liked jared i liked the family i liked the way they work and and the, the more days we did together the more trust they had that oh actually do you know what maybe maybe i will do this um and then it just went from there it went and then you know lots of delays due to covid but i ended up there about a month ago and, and spent the whole three weeks there Curious, Ollie, and this is not meant as any disrespect to SSC or to no one in particular, but I know that when a new driver comes into a racing team, for example, it's not uncommon for that driver to try and find 
a few free minutes without crew around and without anyone around to inspect the vehicle. And it's Mm -hmm. not coming from a place of distrust. It's a lack of familiarity. I don't know you. Exactly. I don't know the chief mechanic, the junior mechanic. I don't know any of these things. If I'm going to climb into whatever racing vehicle it might be, in this case, a uh, weapons grade road car, is there a moment you either ask, hey, could I have 10 minutes with the car to crawl into the cockpit and turn upside down and look at the uh, the, the joints and whatnot on, you know, the, the safety structure and whatnot, uh, look at the suspension and blah, blah, blah. Is there a moment where you, just out of self-preservation, are looking for a few moments to just inspect things on your own so you can tick that mental box and go, okay this looks right and or oh what is that mm, i don't know mm, no exactly that and and to be honest i was a little bit less subtle about it i the very first day i arrived for um the top speed testing runs there was already cameras everywhere um they were they're obviously filming a documentary around it they're filming a, a special movie around it so um, they were all there the second i arrived they wanted to get me straight with a mic on start looking at it i hadn't even seen the car yet um, so I was quite stern with, um, the fact that, you know, it doesn't matter that there's kind of 50 people around and all this hired equipment and they're being paid by the hour. I need to have a look at this car. Um, and at the time I didn't even know Jared was in the building, but I had my, my pen and notepad and my phone and I spent half an hour going through the car, rolling the tires, taking pictures of all the potential puncture spots on the tire, the caster and camber. I had some of my I even had some of my tools with me. I was taking a picture of the harnesses and sending them to Sabelt, my contacts there. Um, get, I had pictures of the Bugatti and Koenigsegg roll cage, which I was comparing to the um, carbon structure of SSC's car. Um, and he came over and he was like, you uh, you making some notes? And he seemed almost a bit concerned. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I want to sit down with you tomorrow and just go through things. And I made a whole, I think, like two and a half pages, A4 pages worth of notes. Wow um which i went through with him yeah and i went through them all with him and and you know 90 percent of them uh he he cured my uh what's the phrase i'm looking for cured my concerns straight away um as i thought he would there was a few bits still left over that um nothing dramatic but things and processes that needed to change um and then when we actually started the runs you know i I printed off a pit procedure that i wanted them to go through because you know these guys are our automotive guys uh, and their pit crew were amazing at what they did, but they're a, uh, you know, they're a workshop crew. They're not a, a race crew. So, you know, the order of, of what driver's door needs to be open because it's hydraulic, you know, if that jams and that can't get out and that's dangerous, then, you know, the fire nozzles need to be pointed this way and then you can check the tires, then the pressures need to be done and, and, and all this order of things that wasn't being done right at the beginning. Um, that, that, you know, they didn't need to know that they're, they're there to sell road cars. They, they don't need to be, doing pit stops in two and a half seconds but it was new things that needed to be taught and i think things that, that jared appreciated you know the first couple of days the the team were a little bit anxious that this british guy probably doesn't really want to be here and does even like the car you know he doesn't seem that impressed you know the very first run i did was about 200 mile an hour and i got out and the guys you know they told me you know a few meals down the road later in that week that they saw zero expression on my face and they're a bit concerned and i said to them well you know if i got out and i was like screaming and hollering at how amazing it was you'd probably be a bit more concerned that <laughs> i'm already excited at this speed you know 
um so yeah i did i did exactly that and it's interesting you should say that because because you know i've I've been constantly on the phone and zoom and in studios the last two days doing interviews and, and, and no one's brought that up, but that was, that was a big part of it for me. So let's get to the business end of this whole meeting between you and uh, the SSC group of you preparing to go for this top speed run. I mean, thinking about all the, all the items that might be wandering through your mind. Had you asked if there were other, places they had scouted to do the run are you actively looking at up to the second weather and forecast info knowing how despite your immense driving skill a poor shot of crosswind can end things in a very bad way just curious about getting ramped up for the day where you're going to go and try and set this record yeah so the days before they had a runway set which we used for about a week um and then i just said you know we need we need two or three of the crew um of the producing side on full-time duty of finding us another runway i was like i don't care if it's you know a 10-hour drive away um we're only getting to 210 or something on this runway and you know i can do that a million more times but it's it's of zero use now how long Um, was that runway by the way um i think that one was about a mile oh okay um you needed to stretch its legs yeah, I, I I wanted to go into the run day having done, you know, at least 250 to know that there's, well, at that point in time, my mindset was is that the world record's 276 average. That's all I want to do. I was not even thinking about 300, which I knew deep down they wanted. But I was like, if anyone comes up to me and asks me to do 300 mile an hour without me telling you I'm going to do it, I'm going to lose it. So I was very much like, I will try my best to get you this world record. That's the minimum. And then what anything we get from there is a benefit. So I, I wanted to get at least 250 before the world record day to know, okay, I'm within 20 mile an hour now. I'm comfortable. Because um, 200 was just too far off. Everything changes above that speed anyway. Um, so we found another runway. We spent hours driving like an eight hour round trip to find this other runway that was, you know, way into kind of area 51 of Nevada, um, that we managed to close down and use. Um, and it was almost to the point where that runway was so good. I was like, should we just try and do the record here? And then I don't have to do it on the road. Cause this is wider. It's safer. Um, cause we were doing like 270 on this runway. Um, and I still had a bit more room and I'm like, look, if I can just do 280 both ways, then we've already done the record. Um, but I think, I think deep down, it was quite a lot of stress on the car cause we had to do, you know, a, a flat out start to get it to do that. Um, and also then the braking procedure and liftoff procedure was a little bit more under pressure. Um, whereas the Nevada route 160, you know, it's so long you can lift off for ages, which was great. Um, so yeah, that was the second place we found. And, um, once I'd done a few runs, at, um, uh, 250 260 270 ish pace then then we knew we were comfortable and, and ready for the for the day itself which um which yeah i was keeping an eye on the crosswind and i was desperate to try and move it a day later um because koenigsegg did their run with two mile an hour crosswinds and we had seven forecast um and we actually got eight um it's not a big number much. but uh, how's this it's not a big number but inside the vehicle at such speeds that's a big number yeah and it, and it was inconsistent it wasn't like a constant breeze where i could hold 
a couple of percent of opposite lock as the speed increases. It was intermittent. Um, and that's why there's such a disparity between the two speeds, actually. And, and there's comments online of, oh, it's downhill one way and it's not the other. But it's 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 a identical bowl, that road. So it's downhill equal both ways. Um, that's why people use it for top speed runs. Um, and it's a crosswind, so it's not even like it's giving me um, a headwind one way and not the other. The only disparity in speed is because I refuse to do another run. Um, you know, our average could be 331 if we wanted it to be. Um, but the risk after the fourth run that we did with the gust of wind moving the car all the way to the hard shoulder, uh, you, what do you call it in America? Not hard shoulder, but the outside lane. Yeah. Um, I just said, look, you know, we've broken the world record. We've done 500 kilometers an hour. We've done 331 top speed. Our average is 316. I could go again if you want me to, but the risk of now this all going wrong and your car, you know, rolling 10 times, me dying, you know, it's just going to end everything that we've now already done. So I said, look, it's your choice. I will risk going one more time if the wind is going to stay consistent. But we had this, we had the, the, weather stations there in the wind sock and it was just getting worse and worse and worse so we we kind of just called it there there's there's more in it there's more in just 10 times rolling you're so funny um <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the run itself and i know all you've probably described this uh too many times for it to be fully fresh experience but maybe we can roll in your a bit of your racing experience to add some uh sense of feel to it so if you were in a a uh, quick open wheel car, as we mentioned at the open, you have downforce and drag to deal with. The drag in particular becomes the limiting factor for top speed. I mean, obviously, if you piled a ton of downforce on, that'll do it as well. But there are aerodynamic forces built into the vehicle, even the LMP1 prototypes that you've raced. There are some built-in factors that allow the car to perform at outrageous speeds in the corners that mm -hmm. affect your ability to whistle down the straights at a million miles an hour in the car. You can feel this point where it stops pulling and, or the lift over drag number just starts to impact performance. What are you feeling in the, uh, Tuatara as you're getting running here and moving up and rowing, I should say rowing, flicking through the gears. Are you feeling the car's natural aerodynamics influencing its ride height, settling and such. When are you starting to feel the ambient conditions, crosswinds uh, starting to move it around? Curious about uh, the input through your, your feet and butt and everything else telling you about uh, this rising speed and the aerodynamic influences. Yeah, so the feel of the car was very much like a, a super trimmed out um, IndyCar quality uh, Indy 500 quality run in the sense that it, it's or like an overly trimmed out, let's say quality run where the car's very, very floaty. There's not much confidence in there. And the, the quicker you go, the, the lighter it's getting rather than the more comfortable it was getting. Um, the record runs themselves. We built up the speed slowly to be cautious with the wind to try and find almost like a pocket, um, uh, of, of good air and also to avoid some bumps on the road actually where i didn't actually even go full throttle till around 250 mile an hour i think i was still at 80 percent throttle from 200 up to 250 <laughs> so i would just build up slowly because we had so much road um 
and then you know about 250 then i kind of give it give it full throttle um then the car starts to get very light you know very careful with your breathing very very forward focused you know further than you've ever looked before in any race car into the distance you know the dotted white line turns into a solid white line through your through your eye and um this sense of um this this sense of kind of floating and and not much connection with the road um which is obviously slightly unnerving um but the, the car pulled incredibly incredibly well and and the weirdest thing was that the wind noise became louder than the engine noise so i could just no longer hear the engine i could just hear wind like your head was stuck out of an airplane in the middle of the air um but the top speed itself wasn't the craziest feeling the craziest feeling was was lifting off and even just a few percent just one percent at a time on the throttle had such a crazy effect um of the shift of of the wake of the air flowing over the car that it just was very, very nervous all the way on the liftoff. Um, and I think I lifted on the data for about six seconds and I was still doing 250 mile an hour um, <laughs> because we were just lifting off so slowly to be careful. At, at top speed, we were covering uh, foot, one and a half football pitches a second. Um, so I just couldn't look anywhere other than forwards because we were just covering so much distance at that speed. I was very, very fortunate to spend a couple of weeks on the Black Rock Desert with Craig Breedlove in 1997 when it was the uh, Spirit of America versus Thrust uh, SSC, coincidentally. A different program there, but (laughs) watching Craig go and do a run at 600 miles an hour and come to a stop, it was insane to view but it was also a really interesting thing just speaking with him afterwards. And again, this is just, you know, American hero times a thousand, right? And he'd, he'd been doing this his whole life. But it's just interesting hearing him talk about the experience inside the car going at, I'll just be blunt, fatal speeds, right? Mm-hmm. A, cr- a crash at any of the speeds leading up to 600 miles an hour, or in your case, 331 peak. <sighs> unfortunately we're, we're visiting you know we're attending a funeral he yeah. just mentioned how obviously there is hyper focus because of the relative instability at those speeds but he also spoke of at times being a little bit of i don't know if solitude is a way to put it i don't know if loneliness or, or feeling like you're the only person on the planet but there was he described things in a way where he was in this earthbound missile going at these speeds ollie and it was just him and the earth and things warping around in front of his eyes like he's going at light speed and just this feeling of the rest of the world melted away and it was just him and this vehicle and trying to attain a record number but also trying to retain mortality tell me about this from from that perspective for you if there was any of that of you blasting down approaching 300 plus was there any sense of isolation the rest of the world fading away etc yeah very much so it's 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 the initial feeling was was this hyper focus of like a a, i i think the closest i felt it was was like a monaco qualifying lap um when you're just really almost subconsciously driving um 
you don't really remember the run. I remember all the slowdown procedures on all the all the runs on that day. I just don't remember that well the top speed runs. And I mean the the cameras that are I mean, I, I don't think I blinked on a single run the whole day. Um there's there's just no time to, to think about anything else. Um and you do feel like the the only person on the planet, your focus is so specific on one job that nothing else matters. But then contrary to that, what was strange was, and this might be a mix of um, obviously a stressful year for, for, for everyone. And then uh, my wife's actually pregnant and, and she's due in January. And then my family who obviously didn't want me to do it. Um, and then uh, the stress and anxiety of, of both um, kind of the contracts leading up to doing this and the actual, you know, realization of, um, I had my friend who was who was the producer, um, you know, come up to right before my first run, tears in his eyes, um, and he kind of I think it hit him that morning that, um, you know, he he recommended me for the job because he thought uh, and and still thinks I was the right person for the job. But then it hit him that morning at 4 a.m. when the roads being closed down. If this goes wrong, like it had done five days earlier for Zeph, who had passed away in the UK, attempting the same record he's put his friend in that position. So then there's a lot of emotion as well linked to that. And and that feeling of solitude and being completely the only person on the planet while getting up to that speed turns into the complete opposite. The second you're back down to what you think is a safe enough speed to realize everything is fine. And then the whole world hits you of the whole world is still here. I'm still here, you know, the, I'm going to get to see my baby and uh, and all that crazy stuff that you didn't you weren't even thinking about before because we wouldn't be able to think about that while we did it otherwise we wouldn't do our job. Um so on that very last run um I spent the last 2 miles in in complete tears for no apparent reason. I had no idea why. Wow. And, and I got out I got out the car and I sat on the tarmac. Um and I just sat there and I just sat there for 5 minutes and didn't speak to anyone and and that's when I kind of that's when I decided, you know, that I think that was the last run. Uh, and, and by the way, the speedo in that car tops out at 300 mile an hour. So I had no idea that we'd done 331. Uh, so all this engineering and work that's gone into the car and the speedo doesn't even go over 300 mile an hour. Uh, maybe because, you know, no one even thought we needed to go over, you know, 300. You know, just thought if he can get anywhere near 300, that's good enough. We just don't need him to know that number over 300. I think that might have been the uh, the thought process there. Yeah. Well, let's close on this, Ollie. So, again, I'm not trying to blow smoke here, but I've only known you as a freaking amazing race car driver, extremely versatile, throw you into anything, and you're going to charge towards the front if that car is capable of doing it. It's been fun in recent days to see a world that didn't know who you were, largely automotive enthusiasts and supercar fans and such, read your name maybe for the first time in association with this crazy record that you and the Shelby family and everyone at SSE have put together. Share with us to close, Ollie, about what this has been like for you where despite seemingly a lifetime of trying to achieve ultimate success and i guess the fame that comes with it as a professional motor racing driver you being completely insane going a thousand trillion miles an hour uh on the highway in in nevada that funnily enough is the uh that's the mechanism that has folks who 
happened to know your name what's it been like it's it's been crazy it's um i mean the last kind of five six seven years uh of of the online world the, the way it is um has been interesting full stop anyway um expanding into into that side of the world you know sharing sharing what i do is really fun and i've, I've always been into photography and filmmaking anyway and, and pushing that towards motorsport and, and using that in conjunction with each other has been great. And that, so when this opportunity came along, um, you know, I knew it was going to do well, but part of me thought, you know, if I was doing this with Bugatti or Koenigsegg, this would be, it would be, it's going to be way bigger news. So when they said, you know, don't post anything for seven days, I kind of thought, okay, by the time it actually comes out, cause there's been a few leaks, it'll be good news, but, um, I, how exciting it will actually be. I'm not sure. Will people just see this as like a, uh, something that's in between a normal road legal car that they recognize um and like a proper jet powered thunderbird style car um or will they actually see it as a car and it's been incredible to actually see it's almost had um the reverse effect of uh, of being positive that no one knew well not many people knew who the car company were either because it's this david goliath situation and i've managed to pilot that car which has been amazing and and people have seen it as a complete road car which is impressive and, and the tires are just normal tires from michelin um so it, it's been amazing to see the type of press and and attention that it's got and and a nice good news story out there and yeah i've had some incredible words um you know part of me thought and part of me thought it will be all about the car and there might be the odd mention of the driver um because you know you're just going in a straight line um but it's been great to see the reaction i'm very pleased with that because i think anyone who's in you know your line of work or, or our line of work and similar will know it in this situation just like you said you know if anything goes wrong it, it, it's pretty much a death wish but it's more about the preparation and expertise leading up to the run to make sure that it's as doable as possible um you know i they employed me to do 99 of the reason why they employed me was to do everything up to the record run on the record run itself someone else probably could have driven it uh, and, and might still have done just as well or probably wouldn't have been as stupid. I don't know. Who knows? But um, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, the year's worth of feeling in my bum of, uh, of come to some use to make sure that that car got back in one piece. Good Lord. I just, I guess the last thing that came to mind, please tell me that in your contract, there is some sort of clause that says if you did break the record, uh, a, a beautiful new Tuatara will be delivered to the uh, garage there for you and the, the new expanded family, possibly. <laughs> I wish. Oh, oh mate. There was, a, there was a lovely bonus structure in place, but everyone said that. And, you know, I didn't even think about it with when the contract kind of came along. I, I And there's a hundred of them as well. It's not like there's only six or something. I should have definitely asked for one. Oh. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll help you with that next contract, brother. <laughs> yeah. Ollie, thanks for taking some time, man. Gl great to catch up. It's been a while, obviously, but yeah, just happy for you. To and you. Great to see uh, you doing wonderful things. And uh, congratulations on uh, what's coming here in January for you and your wife. So uh, nothing but love for you, Ollie. Thanks once more to our man, Mr. Webb. Congratulations to all that's coming to he and his wife here in just a matter of months. And wow. The thought of someone, their body just deciding it had reached its peak, its limit, and just crying the last two miles. Not intentionally, not voluntarily. It wasn't something that his brain said, I just, let's cry now. Just 
This is something that his body decided it needed to do. I find that fascinating. Plus, I'm also trying to think of the precision driving he had to do. And how do you do that with eyes that are wet and misty and just powerful stuff, at least as it was received by me. So thanks to Ollie. Good guy. And knowing him, we'll be doing an interview in a few months or a year from now when he's cracking 400 miles an hour in some sort of insane hyper triple hyper car. I don't even know, but love the guy. Fascinating life. And hope you enjoyed his little visit here to the Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA.